Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 14th, 2018. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so it is a brisk fall morning here in New York. And uh, as I had mentioned before we started, I stole a Facebook status from somebody else, and the Facebook status said, the temperature went from 90 to 55 like it saw a state trooper. So we are cruising along at 55 miles an hour right now, um, and uh, we have a lot of theater to bring to you. So first up in the review section, Peter got a chance to get over to the Davenport Theater to see Popcorn Falls, the new Jim Hindman, and um, directed by Christian Borrell. Uh, tell us about that. Wow. Um, I think this is a big audience uh, success. Um, it it's a, a two-character show. No, it isn't. It's a two-actor show, but it's a multi-character show. It's one of those uh, shows where uh, a person's wearing a baseball cap, and then he takes it off, uh, holds it facing him, uh, representing there's another person under that baseball cap while you don't see another person, and uh, that type of thing. It's very reminiscent of the 39 Steps, in fact, where a lot of that was going on. Um, this is um, half of the 39 Steps, I guess we could call it what um 19 and a half steps um but um all things considered i say that the audience had a much better time at this than they did at 39 steps where they had a wonderful time so uh i think this is going to be a big big hit basically because um not just jim hyman has created a situation that's inherently funny but more to the fact that um adam heller and tom serrata are extraordinarily good. Now, Tom Serrata has the tougher part, I would say, because he has to play more characters. Because Adam Heller plays the mayor of Popcorn Falls, and uh, the town's in trouble. Um, stores are for rent, theaters are dark. So um, they decide that they're going to put on a show. It's that simple a plot, and uh, all the ramifications that happen. But um, most of the townies are played by Tom Serrata, including uh, the local waitress, who you can tell has a thing for the mayor. Uh, she also has a child, and she certainly would like to have a husband. But she really likes him, and all that subtext comes into Tom's performance. And that's just one of a dozen, a score, I don't know, of characters that he plays. And um, it's a very brisk show. It goes by very, very quickly. Um, I don't think I've heard laughter this hard and forceful in a long, long time. So it's really quite wonderful to see an audience have such a, a great time that everything tickled their fancy. And uh, all things considered, I do believe that this is going to have a run. Christian Ball, of course, deserves some credit as well because he's the director. But wow, uh, watch these guys do it. And I won't say they do it without breaking a sweat, but no human being could. Uh, sure, there's uh, sweat up there, but it is not flop sweat. It's good hard work sweat because that's what they're doing, good hard work. And good hard work turns into a lot of fun. So Popcorn Falls is over at the Davenport for um... – what looks like an open-ended run right now. So uh, get your tickets and get over to that. It's a beautiful small space, uh, so there's not a bad seat in the house. <laughs> what they used to say about the um, about circling the squares, not a good seat in the house. Was that? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in essence, that's what uh, Max Bialystok said um, in the producers because he said mm. uh, he invented you know theater in that type of configuration. I think he says theater in the square, but nobody has a good seat. But I mean. It, uh, 
Sure. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. In fact, you know, I have to say, I'm amazed that some of stock um, back in the heyday, back in the 50s, ever took off, that um, somebody would say, uh, but half the time you're not going to see the faces. Uh, it'll drive people crazy. Um, but it didn't seem to matter um, immediately, at least. And I don't think it was the reason some of stock failed was the fact that um, – People couldn't see faces half the time because, after all, the shows in the barns that used to happen too during summer stock have disappeared as well. So, so anyway, but yeah, Popcorn Falls is definitely worth going to for uh, lots of fun. Excellent. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, Midnight at the Never Get. Uh, Michael got a chance to see this at the York Theater. So, Michael, tell us about Midnight at the Never Get. This is a really interesting show. Book, music, and lyrics by Mark Sonnenblick, co-conceived with Sam Bolin, uh, and starring well, um, two people. And then maybe a third person, but I can't talk too much about that. Um, it is about uh, this couple, this male couple in the mid-60s, gay male couple in the mid-60s who meet uh, in uh, through the piano bar circuit in New York City. And they fall in love and they and they form a, a uh, romantic as well as a performing partnership. Uh, the singer is Trevor Copeland played by Sam Bolin, and the pianist is Jeremy Cohen, uh, played by Jeremy Cohen. Uh, this uh, has a lot of very interesting information and, and casts light on an era that maybe a lot of people don't know so much about, what it was like to be gay in New York City right before uh, – the birth of the modern gay rights movement with the Stonewall uprising in 1969. And people had all sorts of accommodations as to how they did that, how they lived their lives in those circumstances. Uh, so many, many people were completely closeted. Others were not, but uh, and some were in certain situations and not others. Uh, there's so much that has been written about this and, and also several plays and music, uh, maybe even musicals we can think of on the subject matter uh, and lots of books. But I do find it very interesting. And um, this uh, show is sort of conceived as a as a basically as a cabaret act that's happening in the in the hereafter. And Trevor Copeland, played by Sam Bolin, is the is the singer, and he uh, narrates and and sings uh, a uh, you know an original score of of really really good songs written in the style uh, that one would have heard sung in a piano bar at that time. Uh, all of these songs are new. Uh, again, book music and lyrics by Mark Sonnenblick, but they all sound as they should, like songs that you've heard before and, and, and uh, would have heard in that context. Uh, this play, I would say, this, this show, uh, directed by Max Friedman, by the way, choreo choreography by Andrew Palermo, it starts out really well. And then I, I think it, it gets a little muddled because they're trying to uh, tell this story in, in several several different ways and several different styles. The narration uh, works to a certain extent, but then it uh, it becomes uh, a little confusing. Uh, the character of the, the pianist uh, is supposed to be on his way to the afterlife because he has just died and Trevor uh, is is looking forward to seeing him again because Trevor has been dead for many decades at this point and he wants to be reunited with the man he loved. Um, then uh, the, the piece gets into some very interesting territory because what happens is that the pianist um, starts to experience success uh, in, in songwriting and, and even uh, a chance to work in Hollywood. And as that happens, he feels it necessary to go into the closet. And so this causes the end of the relationship, his relationship with Trevor. And Trevor uh, was extremely hurt and devastated by all that. And so that's why he's looking forward to being reunited on another plane um, with the pianist. But 
that's uh, well, you have to see the show to find out if that's what happens. There's um, it's it's a little confusing because uh, Jeremy Cohen as the pianist is on stage for the whole time, and and yet uh, we're told that he hasn't arrived yet. Uh, basically, the the time frame of the show keeps shifting back and forth, lots, lots and lots of flashbacks and then flash forwards. Uh, and there is, um, what disappointed me was there is something that happens at the end of the show that could have been one of the most powerful coup de theatres that I've ever seen, but it was kind of wasted because I, I thought, because it was so poorly set up. Um, there is, uh, I, I guess I, I can just say without giving too much away that one more person appears on stage and I'll leave it at that. In fact, you don't, um, in order to keep the surprise, uh, you don't receive, you as an audience member don't receive a, a, a bio uh, of this person or, you know, or, or his list, uh, his cast his name in the cast list until you are leaving the show, you get handed a little piece of paper that has that on it. Um, so if that sounds intriguing, you, uh, you can look forward to that. I, so I guess I, I guess I appreciated this show at the York more for the quality of this, the score, which I really thought was a, a very good, excellent job of pastiche of that kind of song that, that you would hear. And, and sometimes many, on many occasions still hear in a piano bar, um, um, but all new, all new music, all new lyrics. Uh, and that is, I would say, the reason to see it. And then you can, if you do, uh, please report back and let me know if you share my, uh, my problems with the storytelling. All right. So that is uh, Midnight at the Never Get at the York Theatre Company um, through November 2nd, 2018. So if you do get a chance, uh, let Michael know what you think. Next up. Peter, you got to uh, the Good Sweet Opera House, where you saw the Drowsy Chaperones. So tell us about how's Drowsy doing these days? Drowsy's doing extraordinarily well. In a way, in a way, it's um, better here than on Broadway because the Good Speed stage is very, very, very small compared to um, the theater in New York where it played. Was it the Marquis? So, um, <clears throat> you know, when you think of it, this guy, um, man in chair, we never know his name is uh, somebody who doesn't seem to do much for work. I don't know if he's retired. He doesn't seem old enough to be retired, but we don't get any sense um, of what he does for a living. So chances are he doesn't have that big an apartment. Uh, so <laughs> the small stage really works extraordinarily well here, and so does the production. I mean, it really is uh, quite fine. Hunter Foster directed, did a wonderful job. Um, <clears throat> so for those who don't know The Drowsy Chaperone, I'm sorry if you don't, it's simply about man and chair, uh, a guy who's crazy about a, a musical from way back when and plays the cast album for us. Many people have taken issue with the fact that the cast album wasn't made um, in 1928 because, after all, they weren't doing it then. Um, and sure, I can see that. But this time, I don't know if they added a line, but it seems to indicate that um, the, this album was somehow put together well after the fact that it's not a 1928 release. So uh, so that was good, too. And especially given the fact that it looks like a long playing record, which didn't come in until 20 years later. So anyway, aside from all that, uh, it's a delightful show. Um, and uh, we see the musical come to life and we're very glad we do because so many people are, are wonderfully talented who are in this cast. Uh, Ruth Gottschall, who I've admired for a while, is Mrs. Tottendale. She's the, the silly lady whose um, house where the wedding will take place and that's what's happening. That's what we're there for, a wedding. And there's one misunderstanding after another that keeps um, the bride and groom apart from each other, though I do blame the bride um, for taking advantage of a situation and making it hard for the guy. I don't know if uh, a woman should really do that on her wedding day but anyway she does it and um she probably does it because the plot needs her to do it and um <laughs> that's certainly in keeping with musicals uh, back in that era they certainly were silly and they were just good for um stringing songs together and indeed the songs are definitely worth hearing um it, people always complain about we don't have songs that we go out humming anymore but this one offers a bounty of those so i really like that and i like stephanie rothenberg as janet vandergraff the uh the bride to be and uh, certainly jennifer for Ellen was hilarious as the drowsy chaperone and didn't take anything from Beth Level's Tony winning performance. She made it all around, which is really quite wonderful. Um, I really like J. Aubrey Jones as underling the butler. Uh, really had that stiff upper lip.
clip until uh, something happens uh, late in the show that makes him um, melt a little, which is really quite fine. I didn't even recognize, I mean, I knew he was in it, but uh, I wouldn't have recognized James Judy as Feldzig. And I love things like that. Uh, Feldzig, of course, is Ziegfeld uh, reversed. And that's a joke that could have been used all these years that took the uh, authors of uh, uh, Drowsy Chaperone to think of it. So um, I think that's really great that they did. Uh, so I didn't even recognize him. Um, uh, I wouldn't have recognized him if I didn't uh, see his name in the playbill beforehand because he really um, has this distinguished air that I've um, never quite seen him have the opportunity to show before. So I liked uh, that quite a bit. Um, I got into a little kerfuffle uh, this week on Facebook about this production because I really liked the set. You have to look closely, but on the top shelf of the bookcase, there's a first edition of the libretto, the uh, hardcover, She Loves Me. Great. Good. Wonderful. I do believe that uh, this uh, gentleman, man in chair, would like She Loves Me. I'd like to think that everybody would like She Loves Me, um, though audiences have often let me down and not coming to see She Loves Me as much as they do. However, on the refrigerator, there's a magnet um, for chess, the musical chess. And um, I said, you know, this is not the type of guy who likes chess. In fact, he even makes a point of saying that he doesn't like Elton John musicals. I don't think if he likes Elton John musicals that he's going to like chess. So anyway, uh, a lot of people, I have to say on Facebook, really uh, came to the defense of the production saying, well, you know, maybe he liked David Carroll. You know, he had a good voice. and so Maybe that's why it's up there. Yeah, well, then I think there'd be a picture of David Carroll up there uh, rather than chess. But anyway... Uh, I'm not sure he'd go see chess. Uh, well, as it turns out, somebody from Goodspeed wrote me and said the chess um, had a big thing for Hunter Foster when he was growing up. It's one of those shows that made him um, get interested in musical theater. Okay, Hunter take down the chest bag to put it on your refrigerator, but it doesn't belong. <laughs> it doesn't belong on the set of the drowsy shower. I have, List. I have a solution here, Peter. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the man in chair has a friend who doesn't quite understand it and bought it for him and gave it to him as a present. And it's one of those things that it's about the friend more than about chess. This is even more convoluted uh, an explanation <laughs> than I got from anybody on Facebook. Um, I don't know why people aren't just saying, yeah, you know, you got a point. You know, well, anyway, uh, I, I guess I have more of a need to be right here than I usually do, or at least <laughs> I'd like to usually do. Who knows? Who knows? One thing that has dated, you know, there's a big point in the play where uh, Manchia talks about being married. And um, after he talks about it, he then looks at us and says, are you surprised to hear that I was married, you know, because the implication, of course, um, the old um, standby implication that if you're interested in musical theater, you're automatically gay. So, um, but now that line doesn't work as well because, of course, he could have been married to a man. So, uh, so that's um, time has passed, and uh, that that big. Uh, laugh um, doesn't quite play as well uh, today, uh, at least with many of us. I have to say, the audience really took to this show, and I was really glad they did. I wasn't sure if they'd be so um, involved with an, uh, such an inside show. And it is an insider show. And um, I also wondered if um, Goodspeed was going to go to the expense that um, happens uh, after Man and Chair puts on a record and leaves uh, for a few minutes and uh, then comes back. And um, those who saw the show know what I'm talking about, and those who haven't shouldn't have that surprise uh, spoiled for them. So that's why I'm being purposely oblique here. But um, they did. They did. They spent the money uh, to make this happen. So uh, so a, a very impressive uh production and just so nice to go back and see an old friend like this which indeed um <laughs> it is and uh uh we should have more experiences like this where a recent show that um suddenly isn't being uh, uh available to us that much anymore uh, suddenly becomes available um there was a time of course when goodspeed used to go way back in the musical theater canon um you know usually shows about 40 years uh, old and, um, and of course, they're still doing that. Uh, but this is this uh, season; um, they have a more recent one uh, here. And of course, 
we have to point out that this was a last-minute substitution, almost last minute. But uh, Bullets Over Broadway was supposed to happen in this spot, which is even a more recent show. And um, and that was uh, canceled uh, due to controversies that have nothing to do with Bullets Over Broadway itself. But um, but next year they're doing Billy Elliot. So they are doing more recent shows, uh, which may um, make a lot of musical theater uh, fans fa- uh, sad because they would prefer to see them uh, do some more obscure things. But but time marches on, and so it marches on at good speed, too, and that's why we're seeing uh, newer shows there. So uh, The Music Man is going to be done there next year, and a new musical um, is is going to be part of the main stage series uh, because when Dixie – because – yeah, usually they're done at the Norma Terrace Theater, their sister theater, um, that they usually do develop new uh, musicals. But here, um, obviously, they have great faith in this, that this should be a main stage show. So that will happen uh, next year. So uh, that's what to look forward to at good speed. But if you're in the neighborhood now and you feel like seeing the Drowsy Chaperone either for the first time or the 19th time, you're certainly going to have a wonderful time uh, at this production. So I was thinking... Um... Uh, Goodspeed had a change in uh, artistic directors a few years back. So uh, is this just a new direction of the new artistic director? I guess the new artistic director is Michael Gennaro? Yeah, who uh, is the son of Peter Gennaro, uh, who uh, won a Tony for choreographic Annie, and as Cheetah Rivera has reminded us on many occasions, really Mm -hmm. was far more responsible for dances in West Side Story that he gave credit for, that he got credit for. Yeah, he was he was a, a choreographer who did a lot of work on TV, but certainly he showed up on Broadway um, and Sinkable Molly Brown. Was that his? I think so. Or was that on a white? Anyway, um, so uh, he's, he certainly worked on Broadway quite a bit. And um, and this is his son, who certainly knows musical theater inside out as a result. Of this He was a paper mill for a while, and he did a very ambitious season there, including She Loves Me and uh, The Baker's Wife. And so um, so I, I, I wonder if indeed um, that uh, audiences at paper mill didn't respond as, as wildly as I thought they would, especially with She Loves Me. I really thought that was going to be a perfect show for uh, paper mill. And um, – but, you know, I, I, it just never gets the audience attention it should. So anyway, um, no, this guy knows his onions and uh, and his steak and potatoes, too. So um, I do I do believe that uh, good speed is in good hands. OK, so let's uh, move forward uh, from the Good Speed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, to Wagner College, where Michael got a chance to see a little night music. Uh, so, Michael, tell us about this uh, Stephen Sondheim classic. Oh, gosh. What can I possibly say that hasn't been said already? Uh, yeah, yesterday was my big Staten Island Theater Day, uh, Saturday the 13th. I went to a matinee of a little night music, music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by Hugh Wheeler. Uh, and uh, I think one of the best books uh, in the Sondheim canon, it's... It, Always a joy to see this show, not only for the gorgeous score, but also for Mr. Wheeler's excellent work. Um, This production was directed by Michelle Polk, and the musical director was Laurie Young, and I definitely want to mention her because one of the joys of this show was that uh, there was really wonderful accompaniment by a, a fairly small a band or orchestra uh and it's it's not easy when you can't afford or don't have the room for a full orchestra it, it's not that easy necessarily to choose uh who you are going to hire as far as musicians and what's going to sound good and what 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 you can eliminate and what really needs to be there but um this was very well done by laurie young uh there was a Wonderful little complement of musicians, including uh, a harp, which <laughs> my friend Kevin McInerney and I, who went to the show, we were both in heaven. I, 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 to me, having a harp in a show, it just, just, it, it brings it to a whole nother level. There's the, the beauty of that sound is, is so special and so unique. Uh, and it just really added to it. Uh, the performance is were excellent across the board and voices 
um, really much better than you might expect to hear at, at a college level, including the Liebes Leader singers, the five Liebes Leader singers, uh, really just all were very gifted vocally and, and did a really wonderful job. Uh, so it was a joy for me to see and hear this production of A Little Night Music. And then uh, that evening after dinner, Kevin and I went to see the Midtown Men uh, perform at the St. George Theater. Uh, and that was the second time we had seen them there. Their show is the essence of a crowd pleaser. It's it's just so you can feel the, the response of the audience, not None of the applause, none of this, the standing uh, ovations when they happen, uh, none of them seem manufactured. They all seem very heartfelt. These are the uh, four guys from the original cast, the original Broadway cast of Jersey Boys who have been doing this, uh, who have had this group for for several years now and have toured all, all over the world. It's Daniel Reichard, Michael Longoria, J. Robert Spencer, and Christian Hoff. And they do... Um, a terrific show of music from the 60s, pop hits from the 60s, not just uh, the music that you hear in Jersey Boys, although there were several songs from that show, but lots of other uh, pop hits of the day, including uh, – I'm so glad that they that they do this. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, Happy Together. Um, that's one of their one of their selections that's really, really a, a tremendous crowd pleaser. And and here again, um, uh, there's a tie-in because they have, in, in addition to the musicians you might expect them to have, uh, keyboards, uh, guitar, drums, and bass, they also have a, a three-person uh, reed, uh, brass, well, t- two brass and one guy on reeds, the trumpet, trombone, and one guy on reeds. And it just... Uh, it brings it to a whole nother level of professionalism and, and you really feel like you're getting a full show and, and getting what you pay for. Uh, uh, they, they have terrific projections and, and film clips in the show as well. And the choreography is, is almost nonstop. Um, this is a terrific terrific show that they as i say they've done all over the place but um it's not often done in the new york city area which is why uh i made a point of seeing them uh, going to see them at the saint george theater on staten island uh i think they they have they have done the show maybe once or twice in the city i I think it was at the beacon once maybe a, a while ago but um but usually they're on the road and just bringing this incredible entertainment to people all, all over the country and all over the world. Um, so that uh, that was a really good <laughs> uh, theater and concert day for me yesterday on Staten Island, and I had a wonderful time uh, just sharing all of that with with Kevin, and we we had a great day, and it turned out to be a beautiful day weather wise too. So the ferry ride was also beautiful. <laughs> Uh, I have a bunch of questions here. Uh, first yes. off, um, now uh, neither of you drove, right? No. All right. So um, for those people who want to come from New York City to go there, yes, we take the ferry. How hard does it get to uh, either or both places from once you get off the ferry? Uh, well, as I actually mentioned last week, when I uh, when I gave a preview that I was going to be seeing these shows, there is a free van from the Staten Island Ferry on the Staten Island side to and from Wagner College. Uh, So that is very easy. And then uh, from the ferry, it's a, I would say, at most a 12-minute walk from the ferry to the St. George Theater. It is uh, partly up a hill, uh, but not that long a hill. uh, And so that's not a problem. And oh, they're putting more and more money into that place. It's, it's, as I mentioned before, it's partly renovated. Um, It was derelict for years, and then lots of people got behind it. And they made it they very, very smartly made it into a nonprofit organization. Very, very good move. And now they've, over the past several years, they've been uh, refurbishing it, 
further. They've they've done a lot of work on the on the backstage space and the and the wings and the the fly, the the, the uh, tech system. And just now, just very very recently, they put in a beautiful new marquee. I think we were maybe the first ones to see it. So um, yeah, it, that's all very very doable uh, in in without with no very well very little expense other than i guess a subway ride a subway token back and forth or a bus token and then uh very easy to get to navigate to those places all right my other question well the other point i'm going to make is not a question but it's uh it's a comment um because you mentioned happy together uh which was a song Dung by the Turtles uh, back in 1967. And, you know, uh, it reminds me of something that I I just read in Lauren Maslon's wonderful book, um, which uh, is called uh, Broadway to Main Street, uh, which deals with uh, original cast albums, really. And and he talks about the fact that the Sound of Music album was – the original cast album was very successful. It came out in early 1960 and Uh. was very – successful okay however even more successful of course was the movie soundtrack which came out in 1965 and he points out and i am quoting during the entire decade of the 60s those swinging unsettling 60s the most popular and enduring music in america was the score to Rogers and Hammerstein's The Sound of Music. And that had never occurred to me, but he's right, because <laughs> both the cast album and the uh, soundtrack were tremendous sellers, and uh, and they really uh, passed the test of time. And I uh, have a feeling that many of our listeners may not know the song Happy Together by the Turtles, but I suspect they know The Sound of Music. Yeah, that I, I really responded to that section of Maslon's book as well. He, uh, because I was not aware that the original cast recording of Sound of Music was that huge a hit. Uh, but he says it stayed on the charts for a really long time, so long that it was basically still on the charts when the film soundtrack right, 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 was right. released. And so yeah. they sort of dovetailed. And yes, if you go, I mean, if you uh, if you judged it in other ways, uh, you know, radio play of, of songs, it, it wouldn't be true. But if you were going to go on the basis of record sales alone, that <laughs> that music was the most popular music in America for the entire decade. Well, um, I brought up a point in my uh, Masterworks Broadway column when I was writing about this book that um, Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett did a very funny parody of The Sound of Music in their 1962 Mm. review at Carnegie Hall. Okay, this is three years before the film. And yet those involved with this broadcast had confidence that even then, Broadway, the touring versions, and the recording of The Sound of Music reached so many millions that the viewing audience would get the joke. And that's really pretty impressive when you think of it. And of course, what an irony that Julie Andrews was essentially playing Maria in that sketch, a spoof. And I really urge everybody to uh, get a copy of uh, this album. It's great fun. And uh, But The Sound of Music parody is wonderfully um, uh, droll and um, quite, quite funny. And but who knew at that time, uh, including Julie Andrews, that uh, three years later she would perhaps make her most most remembered film. I can see that Mary Poppins may be uh, up there and even displace this. But I, I, I suspect it's um, the sound of music that comes to mind first when people think of Julie Andrews. So, um, And even if it's second, certainly it was uh, an enormous success for her. But she didn't know it was coming when she did that very funny sketch in uh, Julie and Carol at Carnegie mm-hmm. Hall. I recommend it highly. Now, did you use they had confidence on purpose? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'm sure you did. Those are my Easter eggs, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) A song written for the film, I Have Confidence. Written music and lyrics by Richard Rodgers. Well, some claim otherwise, but that's another story. Oh, really? I thought that, well, isn't it the the, the bulk of the song is by him? And then uh, who was it? uh, Saul Saul Chaplin. Saul Chaplin and supposedly, uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, was I there? No. You know, I mean, I, I I never say what I say is true. I only tell you what I hear. So anyway. Yeah, we hear that Saul Chaplin wrote the uh, first part, the verse that "What will this day be like?" I wonder. Mm-hmm. Using using uh, bits of melodies from the verse of the original song, "The Sound of Music," which is not in the film. Hmm. 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 
That's all really good uh, things, <laughs> uh, little Easter eggs, as uh, Peter yes, pointed out. That's excellent. All right. Uh, so we did the Midtown Men at St. George Theater, and that's running – that was just a one-night-only thing, October 13th, and Wagner College's night music uh, ended October 14th, which is today, this afternoon. It will end. All right. Next up in our reviews, Peter, you got over to the Evolution of Man at the Cell Theater uh, down at Chelsea. So tell us about the Evolution of Man. Well, what I have to tell you first is that um, the music and many of the lyrics were written by Douglas J. Cohen, with whom I am writing a show. So uh, full disclosure right off, you know, so so obviously I think uh, Doug is tremendously talented and I don't believe that anybody who would go to the show would uh, disagree. The, uh, it's it's a romantic comedy. It's simply about a guy who's trying to get over uh, a girl and it's been uh, a while and he has a tough time, even though his best friend, um, his roommate, who's a lesbian, um, helps him uh, to get through this, but he's just not going to get through it. And so it's a show where one woman plays um, all the women that he gets involved with, including the woman that he um, is trying to get over. So uh, the point being that every woman he sees, he can't get over the original woman. She's still there in his mind. So uh, there is a woman he's very interested in who seems less interested in him, but um, she gives him enough attention that he can convince himself that she's the one. Meanwhile, there's another woman who um, is certainly um, interested in him. And, well, uh, is anything nice going to happen there? Well, you know, you obviously think what's going to happen is that the um, the woman in which he's less interested is um, going to eventually come back into his life after the other woman um, dumps him. It's not that simple, I'm happy to say, very happy to say. So, um, uh, yes, uh, as I say, I'm working with Doug, but... I am convinced that if I went to this show that I would have still been in tears for two songs um, that were so moving, uh, one in which the um, woman who, who's more interested in him <clears throat> sings a song about, well, it's only a first date and don't get your hopes up, uh, tremendously moving. And then at the end, a song about uh, what happens when you're married, um, that you have to understand that there are going to be a lot of unexpected things that occur that uh, you don't really think about in the early stages of relationship that do uh, come up and there's no avoiding them. So um, a terrific, terrific um, cast too. Max Crum um, it plays the guy. Um, the one who uh, is the tougher of the women is Ali Trim, uh, who you may remember from 13. And one of the reasons she may very well be there is because Dan Elish um, worked with Doug on this book um, and lyrics as well and uh, wrote the novel on which this musical is based, a musical called Nine Wives. So um, and uh, so that was really something. And Leslie Hyatt, uh, a newcomer, um, is very, very fine, too, uh, in uh, the other roles. So I think this is really a very worthwhile project. And you may go there and say, ah, come on, you, you, you and Doug. I mean, you know, I don't think so. I really don't. And um, it's done at the Cell Theater, which is um, a tiny, tiny space on 23rd Street. And I've been there many times. And um, I'll tell you, you know, the configuration, the way they've um, – the way Joe Barris is, uh, I guess he was the one who said, um, let's have this. Maybe it was the set designer. I don't know. But it's been reconfigured in a way that is so sleek and sharp and and winning for its own sake that I do believe that um, I've never seen the space used better. And um, there's not much space for an audience, I'll grant you. And that's too bad because I think this deserves a big audience. And I'm uh, hoping it moves, um, not just for Doug's sake, but for the show's sake, for Dan's sake, and for everybody's sake. Because I do th think this is a very worthwhile uh, project, production, and it's going to bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Okay. So that is The Evolution of Man at the, uh, Man at the Cell Theater. It's through October 27th, so you have about two weeks left to go see that. Uh, Michael, you got to see um, my Parsifal conductor at the Marjorie Dean Little Theater uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So tell us about this. Yeah, you know, this is the damnedest thing I have seen in a very long time. I uh, was very curious about it as soon as I received the press release. My Parsifal conductor, a Wagnerian comedy world premiere uh, presentation by Alan Liked, directed by Robert Calfin. And 
It's here's the thing. Um, it's based on the true story of how the uh, great composer Richard, Richard Wagner was r- writing uh, an opera called Parsifal with a very religious themed opera. And uh, his patron, uh, King Ludwig of Bavaria, uh, is very much uh, behind this production financially and in every other way. And the conductor that King Ludwig has chosen for this this project is Hermann Levy. Uh, a Jew. Now, this is in uh, the the years that we're dealing with here. For the most part, are 1880 through 1886, and Wagner was a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, he's he's always been a fascinating figure to um, musicologists and lots of other people because he wrote incredibly sublime, beautiful, gorgeous music, and he had uh, this this hatred, this bigotry in him of of Jews, uh, which after his death uh, led to one of the biggest, if not the biggest tragedies the world has ever seen in terms of the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust. So uh, when I got this press release and I saw that it was billed as a Wagnerian comedy, I could not imagine how it could be remotely funny in any way, because the gist of the story is that uh, King Ludwig is insisting on Hermann Levy as the conductor, and Wagner and his wife Cosima are against it because they hate Jews. Well, um, I sitting there watching this show with a with a very small audience at the Marjorie S. Dean Little Theater in the West Side Y up on 64th Street, uh, West Side YMCA, by the way. Um, I felt like sometimes I was in the audience of Springtime for Hitler because I I could not believe that they were trying to make this funny. And here's where the really weird stuff comes in. Every now and then, and and let me let me let me hasten to add, no one was laughing uh, because there was nothing funny. And I don't know if one person in the audience laughed through the whole performance. Uh, It the timing and the direction and the acting of the script was, for the most part, as if it was supposed to be an uproarious comedy. Uh, Meanwhile, all these anti-Semitic slurs are flying back and forth and horrible things are being said. And I could not quite believe what I was hearing. Uh, But then I I, I tried to pull myself out of all of that. And I noticed at several points that the lines themselves were not – written as if they were supposed to be funny. It's almost as if this were intended as a drama, and then somebody decided to play it as a comedy. Uh, well, it was as disastrous as that may sound. Uh, it it was a, just incredibly offensive and weird and strange, and I don't think the audience knew what to make of it. I, I uh, you know, I can only speak for myself, of course, in one sense, but just in terms of their response to it uh, and the lack of any laughter, I think they were as confused and puzzled, maybe offended as I was. So, um, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, they didn't, uh, the, this, the, the set was really quite well done and that that theater is is lovely uh so there were professional aspects to the production but the uh that didn't intend uh, that didn't extend to the pronunciation the correct pronunciation of the the characters names because it's ricard wagner but people kept saying ricard and it's cosima wagner but people kept saying cosima as if she were italian so um i guess they didn't even do that much research uh for the record um Cosima was played by Claire Brownell, Richard Wagner played by Eddie Corbich, who is usually great on stage in everything I've seen him in, but was totally at sea here because the whole idea of it was so incredibly screwed up. Um, 
Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche appears in, in the play, uh, weirdly, and he was played by J- Logan James Hall. King Ludwig, uh, Carlo Bosticcio, Hermann Levy, Jeffrey Cantor, uh, and then two other characters, Dora, Allison Simmet, uh, and then Sophie slash Carrie Pringle, played by Jasmine Gorsline. Um, it, it really is uh, quite quite a strange experience that I, I can't really describe to you uh, any better than that. I, I don't know if I'm getting across uh, what it was like to be sitting there during this. And I am uh, very curious now that I've weighed in to read what other whatever other reactions there may be from other critics and, and uh, just uh, you know, re- uh, regular theater goers in, in chat boards and places like that. Okay, so uh, that's my Parsifal conductor at the uh, Dean Little Theater at the YMCA on 64th Street, and it's through November 3rd. Uh, Peter, you uh, got a chance to get to the IRT where you saw Hitler's Tasters uh, down on Christopher Street, Um, and uh, a quick search of our archives said that you saw Hitler's Tasters uh, somewhere else a couple of months back, back in April. uh, do the two compare? Is it the same show? Um, it's not the same production. We have three yeah. new actresses in the part. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to say, I'm sorry to say it's the same show because, um, obviously this playwright, um, Michelle Colos Brooks, um, sees something that I don't see at all. And that is, um, this great idea of what it was like to be literally Hitler's taster, that, uh, the food was brought in that you would taste and sample before it would go to him because it could be poisoned. Um, well, you know, <laughs> that's a very, very, very good idea for a play. Um, these, Girls know that many people in Nazi Germany at this point in time are starving, and here they are getting the greatest food, except it could kill them. That's a very powerful idea. Why, uh, I made this point before, I'll make it again, why this playwright felt the need to anachronize the play has mystifies me tremendously because Mm -hmm. the girls have cell phones they take selfies uh, they have a lot of expressions that uh, one wouldn't use back then and I don't know why this is necessary is the point that girls will always be the same Uh, well why is that relevant to a play called Hitler's Tasters I have no idea Um, I will admit that uh, many of the um, aspects of the girls personality certainly are, are, are aspects of girls' personalities today and men's personalities too, for that matter. Um, Mary Catherine Cop plays the prettiest of the uh, three girls we meet uh, as the lights come up. We will meet the fourth girl as time goes on, but um, she's the prettiest, and perhaps that's why she uh, takes so much control here and uh, really seems to be the one who the other girls listen to, especially because um, Haley Griffin plays the one with the glasses, and back then, uh, to a smaller degree, a much smaller degree now, but back then, wearing glasses, well, you were automatically um, stigmatized for your stigmatism, because really, uh, that was just a fashion no-no. You you were just a geek if you wore glasses. So, uh, so she's the one who's um, the the least secure about who she is. And then <clears throat> in the middle is um, Caitlin Page Longoria, who's um, they're all very good. They're all very good. But just as the it starts happening that they the meals are brought in and they're petrified to taste it, knowing this could be their last bite. Um, it's not long before some anachronism comes in, um, including. Um, the line that got a big laugh at Hackerstown and did not get a laugh here, which was very interesting to me when somebody referred to um, he's going to make Germany great again. And um, I found it interesting that uh, the audience didn't respond to that here. And I wonder if by that point in the play, which was late in the play, they had tuned out. I really don't know. It's in a very small space, very cramped space. Um, If you have been to the IRT, um, complex down at 154 Christopher Street, you know that uh, you usually go downstairs and take a right and you're in um, a a theater that's far more commodious than the one where this is playing. This you have to take an elevator and go into a very small room. The seats are very cramped, I'll tell you that. And um, 
so I, I, I would love to talk with um, Ms. Brooks and see why she really felt that this was, this had to happen. Uh, that we had to have cell phones, but I, I don't think anybody's going to have much of a problem understanding why it pulled me out of the play and made the um, experience less terrorizing, less, less realistic. Um, uh, maybe I'm just somebody who just like naturalistic uh, plays, but, mm-hmm. um, but that's what I wanted Hitler's tasters to be because it's such a powerful idea. Why muck it up with uh, anachronisms? You know, it's amazing that that Hitler has at least tangentially come up three times in this podcast because we talked about The Sound of Music a little bit and then uh, the show you just discussed. And then in my Parsifal Conductor, I I guess what I didn't actually say was that uh, decades after his death, uh, Wagner's music was – tragically used in the death camps uh, as a sort of uh, some horrible uh, demonstration of uh, pure German art mm-hmm. and achievement. And, and that was the last music that, that, that some of those who were s- slaughtered heard. And, and uh, it's, it's just kind of, uh, that's something that obviously um, the world will will always be part of the the tragedy of of world events. And I don't think it's accidental. We're hearing about um, Hitler. Mm, yeah. Time. <laughs> yes. Right. Enough said. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's uh, switch to some good news here, Michael. You got a chance to get over to the Kaufman Center where you saw the. F- I think it's the first in a series called Broadway Close-Up. The one that you saw was Broadway Bound for 2018 with Liz Calloway. Tell us about this. Uh, well, yeah, the series uh, has been around for a while and can continues every year. Uh, Broadway Close-Up is the umbrella title of the series. Uh, and then there are these concerts within it. Um, I guess I think one a season called Bound for Broadway. Uh, and they're hosted by Liz Calloway. And they feature uh, excerpts from musicals that are in development, uh, various stages of development. Uh, so this one, uh, I think this was the second uh, Bound for Broadway that I ever attended. Um, this one was a, a really good group. So I'm, I'm going to have to try to go more often. Uh, there was a musical called XY, uh, book, music, and lyrics by Oliver Hauser, developed with and directed by Hunter Bird. And that's about a, um, a uh, per, uh, in, intersex, per, a person who's born intersex, meaning they have the, the characteristics of both sexes. Um, so that's uh, a, a very specific uh, subject that we don't always see dealt with uh, as much as we are seeing so much more about trans people and, and, uh, and, and of course gay people. Um, so that, that, that's a subject that's really ripe for, um, for examination and in a, in a play or a musicals. Uh, so I'm glad that they tackled that. Then there was a, a much lighter show called, uh, we, we heard three songs from Go, Go, Gilgamesh, a book, music and lyrics by Phoebe Kreutz. Um, then there was an intermission and in act two uh, songs from Key Change, book, music and lyrics by Ben Wexler. And then finally, a, a really, what looked like a really delightful show uh, called Nikola Tesla Drops the Beat, book by Ben Halstead and Nico Benson, music by Nico Benson. Um, so I'm I'm glad I was there at Merkin Hall in, in the uh, the Kaufman Music Center. It's a, a wonderful hall in itself. Uh, it's a concert hall, not 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 theatrical venue. There uh, there's very little in it, I believe, in terms of wings, and there are no flies or anything like that. So you can't couldn't probably really do a actual show there but it's a wonderful size very intimate and great acoustics and they do a lot a lot of good programs there uh, google broadway close up uh, merkin hall kaufman music center and you'll you'll see um that they have a lot that i that i think would be of interest to our listeners you don't have to Google it. You just have to go to our show notes. I have the list of all the shows coming up on October 29th, Broadway Close-Up Hidden Gems, uh, November 1st, another Hidden Gems, November 12th, uh, when Broadway went to Hollywood, and December mm-hmm. 10th, 
whatever it is, I'm against it. 100 years of funny <laughs> Jewish songs. <laughs> so, uh, and it does say on the Kaufman website that uh, most of these are sold out, uh, but they do have single tickets available. So click on that link and get the, your tickets sooner than later because these sound like uh, they're selling out really quickly. It, it sounds like so much fun. I'm going to try to get to see this. And the photo on the cover of the program that I got for this concert is a really great photo in performance of Leslie Kritzer. So those are the kinds of people they get for these shows. <laughs> she is so funny. All right. Uh, in the news, we have uh, sad news of the passing of Carol Hall. Um, Michael, do you want to say a few words about Carol? Well, Carol Hall, I, I got to spend some time with uh, – Quite a few years ago when I went to the uh, cabaret camp, as it used to be called, uh, up at the O'Neill Center, and she was one of the master teachers. Uh, she was so wonderful in terms of uh, uh, just the way she dealt with giving the critiques to the cabaret performers after they would sing and then the, the master teachers would critique them. And she was so supportive, uh, but also be uh, she she had a great ability to focus in on what needed to be improved and what was already uh, wonderful and did not need to be improved um and i did get to speak with her a bit uh outside of that and she was just a wonderful woman who will always uh be known for writing the music and lyrics for the best little whorehouse in Texas, which uh, opened on Broadway in 1978 and ran to 1982. Um, then uh, she also, there was a, a sequel to that show, which unfortunately was a big flop. The best little whorehouse goes public 1994, uh, only ran about uh, less than two weeks. Uh, but I hasten to say that the problem with that show was not the score, not Carol Hall's music and lyrics. There were some really good songs in it, as you can hear if you pick up the cast album, which does exist. Um, it was the problem there was, well, the book, I guess, in the direction. Uh, but Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was a big hit at its time and became a, a, a hit film, which unfortunately threw out a lot of Carol's songs, but did keep in enough of them to uh, help uh, her name become world famous. Uh, there are really excellent songs in that show, wonderful character songs and, uh, and really great uptunes and, and ballads. And she, she had a wonderful talent to that. She also is known for having contributed to free to be you and me, uh, the Marlo Thomas project from decades ago uh, that uh, Carol has two or three songs in that, I believe. And she um, is, uh, remains uh, one of, I guess, still to this day, relatively few women who have had been represented on Broadway by uh, having written music and lyrics for a show. She was not, I, uh, she was not the first, uh, the, uh, Mary Rogers certainly comes to mind, um, uh, but it was, uh, 1978 was, was certainly still a time where that was really quite unusual. So she deserves a place in musical theater history for that alone. And, and Whorehouse, um, uh, although its subject matter has perhaps maybe kept it from being revived, uh, as much as some other more completely family friendly shows, um, it has been done a lot and, uh, it's actually not. Uh, the title is the most raunchy thing about it. It's 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 really quite uh, quite wholesome, I would say. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't deal with the sex part in any in any kind of detail. Uh, it's about uh, really kind of this family uh, that forms uh, among these women who work in this place uh, with Miss um, Mona as their uh, as their mother figure and. Uh, that's what it's really about. And then it's also about media frenzy, uh, which is always a timeless subject. So Carol Hall um, will be missed. Uh, and I I'm glad we have that show to remember her by. Peter, any words? 
I met her at Williamstown when I went up to see a production of 1776, and um, we uh, had coffee, and she brought it up herself. It wasn't as if I was prodding her. Mm. She she simply said, you know, a lot of people say that uh, I'm a one-hit wonder, and of course that's true. I've only had one Broadway hit. Yes, it's been a substantial hit, but it's one hit. And would I have liked to have had others? Of course. I worked on a musical um, about baseball that uh, got done at good speed. Uh, nothing much happened to it uh, after that. And that was, of course, disappointing as well, as well as other projects I started, stopped. And, of course, yes, the sequel to Whorehouse was um, not a success, to say the least. But, you know, I really believe, she said, that I give hope to people, the fact that I came out of nowhere where it came to Broadway. Yes, I had a song on a Barbara Streisand album um, that uh, was well-received, but I really wasn't in, in, in an insider where it came to Broadway. I wasn't somebody who anybody knew in any real sh- form, and nevertheless, it happened. It happened. It can happen. And I like to think that I give hope to people that's when they think that Gee, um, if if you're not inside the world and nobody knows who you are and your name means nothing, that it's going to stay that way. Not necessarily. You got to keep going. You got to keep finding the right idea. And uh, if you find the right idea, it will happen. And I really hope that people look at my success with that one show in that way. That it really is a situation of succeeding on Broadway. That's not irrelevant. That's not something to be sneezed at. Um, People who certainly make it to Broadway even have failures are successes in the fact that it's so hard to get there. So to have a hit show, even if it's only one, I'm very proud and I hope it's an inspiration to many. So I thought that was terrific. That yeah, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I, I should mention she uh, a standalone song that Carol wrote that is really beautiful and became something of a hit is called Jenny Rebecca. Yeah, that's um, the one the Streisand album. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, beautiful song. All right. So that is uh, wonderful remembrances of Carol Hall, um, and we'll have a link to her obituary in the show notes as well. Okay, so before we wrap up for the morning, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many different ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as uh, the show notes where we link to all the different things, including Broadway Close-Up, um, my Parsifal Conductor, Drowsy Chaperone, Popcorn Falls, all these different shows we talked about today are linked in the show notes. Uh, so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Yeah, I asked, what do these shows have in common? Oklahoma, Fiorello, Hello, Dolly, Over Here, Oh, Brother, Swing, and Mamma Mia. And the answer is they all have exclamation points included <laughs> in their titles. <laughs> Michael Portantier was the first to get it, although he, he had a profound advantage over everybody else. But as for listeners, Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Ron Fassler, Jack Leshner, Deb Popple, Daniel Hurst, and John Moss. Now... This week's question is influenced uh, by the book we mentioned earlier, Lauren Maslin's new book, Broadway to Main Street, uh, which I heartily recommend. And uh, he came up with something I didn't know. So uh, I guess I'm urging you to get the book to find the answer. But if you know the answer without knowing the book, I'm really impressed because I think this is really a toughie. What was the first cast album? Cast album to include its printed lyrics of all the songs that were in the show, uh, or at least on the recording. So the first cast album to include printed lyrics of the songs in the album. Okay. If you know the answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye